Do you ever think about why you vote for a particular political party? Maybe you're a Democrat because you really love the way that James K. Polk got us Texas, California, and Oregon in the 1840s, despite the objections of Abraham Lincoln. Maybe you're a Republican because you think Abraham Lincoln was right to oppose the deal, even if it means we don't get to keep Oregon. Sorry, Oregon. You might be a Republican because your great-grandpappy has been one since that time William Howard Taft got stuck in the White House bathtub in 1911. You might be a Democrat because your grandma swooned over that dreamy John F. Kennedy when he nearly ran for vice president in 1956. Maybe you want to vote for a party that says they'll do something about climate change, health care, student loan debt, and get you a discount on an electric car or solar panels. Maybe you want to vote for a party that says they'll do something about abortion rights, tax rates, immigration, and get you a discount on your annual United Nations dues. Whatever the reason, is it something you give a lot of thought to? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. If you're a member of the exhausted majority, you pick one because there are only two choices. You vote with a shrug. The dogs, who truly understand blind loyalty and I, dig into partisanship and how it's destroying America. And if you think the party you keep voting for has been the same party this whole time, I've got some bad news for you on this episode of I'm Not Allowed to Watch the News. The history of the two major American political parties is riveting. Well, maybe not. The Democratic Party was founded by Thomas Jefferson, or more likely by his right-hand man, James Madison. It preferred agriculture over manufacturing, and believed the strength of the nation lay with the common people, farmers, workers, and so on. It believed that the individual states should chart their own destinies without too much interference from the federal government. The Republican Party was founded in 1854 to oppose slavery. It believed the federal government held supremacy, not the states, which was necessary at the time since the states were calling the shots on things like retaining human beings in bondage and seceding from the Union. The shiny new Republican Party maintained that one united nation was far better than groups of states bound by geography or ideology. How things have changed. Since I warned you about my unpopular opinions, here are a couple more. We haven't had one Democratic Party since 1796 or so. We've had about eight of them, and the ninth is struggling to be born right now. We haven't had one Republican Party since Abe Lincoln put on his stovepipe hat and went to New York to give a nationally recognized speech about slavery, which was really about what the states could and could not do. We've had about seven. Yes, I know. I must be stopped. You're not the first to think that. But hang in there, and I'll explain. You may think that our two political parties are powerful and rich and corrupt and are the ones calling the shots in our government, and that they always have. So you might blame them for everything that's wrong and has been wrong with the country this whole time. Except, no. The Democratic Party and the Republican Party are not, on their own, leaders of anything. They are prime movers of nothing. They are pliable middlemen in the transactions of American politics. Their commission, to extend my metaphor, is the only thing they really want. Permanent political majorities. The dogs tend to fall asleep when I geek out about American history. That's probably because there aren't a lot of historical American dogs. 
British dogs seem to have had more fun, historically speaking, so they tuned me out. Hopefully, you all can stay awake for this. 19th century Democrats supported slavery and opposed Reconstruction, enacting oppressive Jim Crow laws to keep African Americans in a state of second-class citizenship in the southern United States of the late 19th and early 20th century. Now they are seen as champions of equal rights, and the South is fairly solidly Republican. Richard Nixon, a Republican of some heft, created the Environmental Protection Agency and signed the Clean Air Act. Today's Republicans have a reputation for opposing environmental regulations. Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt, Democrats of some stature, got America into two world wars. Harry Truman sent troops into Korea. John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson got America mired in the Vietnam War. All Democrats. These days, Democrats are seen as the anti-war party. Ronald Reagan, who is almost universally beloved by Republicans, signed the Immigration Act of 1986, which legalized most undocumented immigrants who had arrived in the country prior to January 1, 1982. He took it a step further, issuing an executive order to legalize the status of minor children of parents, granted amnesty under the immigration overhaul, and announcing a blanket deferral of deportation for children under 18 who were living in a two-parent household, with both parents legalizing or with a single parent who was legalizing. Today's Republicans claim to want closed borders and would have no part of anything like amnesty. The Reagan Immigration Acts received more Republican support than Democratic. President Dwight D. Eisenhower, another Republican of stellar reputation, argued against huge military spending, warning the country about the greed and power of the military-industrial complex. Today's Republicans insist on a strong national defense, which means lots of government spending in that military-industrial complex. The small government Democrats of the early 19th century oversaw the largest expansion of the federal government a hundred years later. Civil War-era Republicans built a massive federal bureaucracy to win the war, but a century later want government to be small enough to drown in a bathtub. Democrat Thomas Jefferson, that champion of a small and weak federal government and the American Constitution, nonetheless managed the Louisiana Purchase, even though he didn't know if the Constitution would let him do it, and it was a significant expansion of federal power. Republican Theodore Roosevelt was a major force in the environmental movement. Democrat Harry Truman dropped the first atomic bombs ever used. Republican George H.W. Bush raised taxes. If political parties are big and mean and scary and run the politics in this country according to their desires, how could their platforms and policies have changed so radically over our history? Here's the big secret. The parties aren't trying to enact policies near and dear to their hearts that they've consistently wanted since the first day of their first caucus. They're trying to win and maintain political power over the nation. That's it. Republicans under Herbert Hoover lost the country over small government principles. FDR won it back by promising the biggest government any American had ever seen. Jimmy Carter was elected as an honest counterpoint to the deceitful Richard Nixon. Ronald Reagan was seen as a strong leader compared to the weak Carter. Barack Obama made the Democrats the party of affordable health care. George W. Bush made the Republicans the party of faith and family values. The Democratic platform of 1940 was whatever Franklin Roosevelt said it was, the same way the Republican Party platform of 2020 was all about the policies of Donald Trump, whatever they might be. Parties need winners in order to win. John F. Kennedy's appearance at the 1956 Democratic Convention established him as a rising star in the party, 
the same way that Bill Clinton's speech at the 1988 convention and Barack Obama's in 2004 marked them for future victory. These men didn't ride the party's coattails. It was the other way around. Republicans won with Teddy Roosevelt and Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. Democrats won with FDR and Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson and Bill Clinton and Obama. These leaders, with their massive public support, took over their parties and changed party platforms into their platforms. If the parties are so powerful, why weren't Kennedy and Reagan and Obama and Trump mere partisan functionaries who did what they were told? The two major parties keep third parties from gaining traction, but it's not ideological. The only principle at work is that the more parties there are, the more diluted their power to govern will be. More parties means more compromise. Having only one serious opponent means there's only one left to finally defeat once and for all. After which, you guessed it, permanent political majority. Ultimately, the two major parties are about two things. Paying lip service to the voters who will vote for them no matter what, and co-opting enough hot-button wedge issues so they can win elections. Principles are for wild-eyed zealots. This episode is brought to you by The Aurora of Philadelphia, published by fun-loving founding father Benjamin Franklin's grandson, the creatively named Benjamin Franklin Bash. After his grandfather's death in 1790, Benny Bash inherited Franklin's printing shop and equipment. He adopted the motto, Sergo ut prosum, I rise to be useful, in honor of his grandfather, Benny Frank. He figured one thing he could do with his new printing press to honor his grandfather would be to publish a newspaper that focused on attacking people like George Washington and John Adams. Neat. I guess little Benny Bash probably should have paid more attention to his grandpa's career. Benjamin Franklin was no fan of John Adams, but in his defense, Adams was a petulant killjoy who thought Ben Franklin was having a little too much fun in Paris, which wasn't false, when he should have been working on that whole alliance with France so we can kick some British ass. But George Washington, come on, he and your grandpa were great friends, they hung out often, hell, he basically won America its independence. What is there for an 18th century critic to say? The Aurora regularly featured articles attacking the monarchical tendencies of the first president and those of the second, the latter being slightly more accurate, I suppose. He accused John Adams of wanting to establish a hereditary presidency, with his son John Quincy Adams eventually succeeding him which did kind of eventually happen. He even accused Washington of collaborating with the British during the Revolution. I mean, there was that one time where George saved his enemy's dog, so maybe Benny Bash is onto something. No, he's not. Benny also argued that the Senate shouldn't deliberate in secret, and that the terms of the infamous Jay Treaty of 1794, which, by the way, resolved some leftover disputes between America and Great Britain, see that kick some British ass thing, should be made public. Benny's partisan attacks got so nasty that even the anti-federalist thought he had gone too far. John Adams' federalist, of course, passed the Sedition Act of 1798 to threaten the kind of vociferous criticism the Aurora was putting out. Ironically, Benny Bash was arrested for seditious libel before the Sedition Act was formally passed, which should really tell you how big of a target he had painted on his own back. Even other publishers began to attack him in print, most notably a prickly fellow named Peter Porcupine. While inspecting the construction of the USS United States, Benny was attacked by the son of the ship's architect in response to an article that the Aurora had put out accusing the shipbuilder of taking bribes. As Benny took a brutal beating, the crowd at the dock cheered, believing that it was well-deserved. 
The Aurora became a hard paper to sell even in those days of super-nasty hyper-partisanship, especially once criticism of the government in print became, you know, illegal. Benny died of yellow fever at age 28 while still awaiting his sedition trial, which was based on a law that arguably violated the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Amazingly, history has looked favorably on Benny Bash as he is remembered as a champion of free speech, as well as one of America's earliest partisan rabble-rousers. Fortunately, America learned its lesson and never ever again engaged in nasty backbiting and outright lying about political opponents, and the parties themselves settled down and became responsible stewards of public interest. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Who the hell is writing these things? You can't govern if you don't win, the old saying goes, back when winning elections meant governing. When it meant your policies would triumph. When you could affect change in the national interest. Territorial expansion, equal rights for all Americans, economic booms, healthcare reform, visionary foreign policy, or domestic priorities. Nowadays, the best part about winning, and the only part, is that the other side loses. Victory isn't about what you're going to do now that you've won. It's about how badly you beat the other guy, and your long-term strategy to make him go away forever. When the parties show up every couple of years to tell us what the election is about, they're not talking about issues they want to solve. These issues, abortion, climate, guns, healthcare, immigration, infrastructure, taxes, trade, and so on, aren't campaigned on so they can bring them to the people's attention and take care of them once and for all. The parties are talking about your pain, about what bothers you. Once your problems are established, they present themselves as the only way to fix them. It's like back when we had door-to-door -door salesmen. A serious professorial type would come in with encyclopedias, point at your son, and ask if you wanted that dull-looking fellow to grow up to be an idiot. Do you want him living in your house till he's 40? The salesman would ask. Which, trust me, no one did. Get him some smarts right here at home and send him out into the world to be a success. So you bought a bunch of encyclopedias. A grim guy in a black suit shows up to remind you that you might die, and you'll probably want a life insurance policy so your kids don't end up broke and homeless, especially the ones struggling to read an upside-down encyclopedia in the corner. You feel fine, you tell him, and he reminds you that cars crash and furnaces explode and lightning falls from a clear blue sky. So you buy the policy. A nice woman selling a monthly dog treat subscription comes by and, yes, boys, we're buying the treats. No, I don't have them right now. It's a hypothetical. Dogs apparently do not understand illustrative scenarios to make a point. I'll give them a cookie and we'll do one more. A dapper fellow in a snazzy hat would show up at your door, spread a bunch of dirt all over your carpet, and vacuum it up with a unit he brought with him in the trunk of his car. Isn't that way better than before, he would ask, as he demonstrated all the features of his shiny new cleaning machine? Of course it is. So you buy a new vacuum cleaner from the guy who dumped the dirt on your floor in the first place. The parties work exactly the same way. They tell you what your pain or problem is, even if it wasn't something that was ever really bothering you, then present themselves as the only solution. America ends up with new vacuum cleaners, encyclopedias, life insurance policies, and monthly dog treat subscriptions. It's a hypothetical, boys. Hypothetical. America doesn't get effective health care or lower taxes, or the satisfaction of putting Belgium out of the waffle business. And when your vacuum cleaner doesn't pick up the dirt as well as you thought, and your kid has no interest in reading about the fall of Constantinople, which, by the way, is chock full of important life lessons, that slick fellow who sold it to you is long gone.
The more the parties can count on your vote, driven by partisan loyalty, the more they take it for granted. And they've come up with a surefire formula to keep your vote in their column. If you're pro-life, opposed to illegal immigration, and love guns, but you don't like Republican tax policy, sure, go ahead. Vote Democrat and get nothing that you care about. You might get the exact opposite. If you're worried about the separation of church and state, want health care that works, and need to be sure your grandma can still have her Social Security but don't think we have the money to spend trillions on climate change, sure, go ahead. Vote Republican. Watch what happens to grandma. So you vote. Not for the party that you think will do the most good, but the one that will do the least harm. You may even think you'll actually get all those things they promised you on the Monday night before Election Day. But they didn't really want to fix anything. They just wanted your vote. And they got it. It's a convenient fantasy that all Republicans are 100% in favor of every plank of the party platform, or that they are 100% opposed to every item on the Democratic agenda. The Democrats are themselves fairly divided over their priorities, too. There are Democrats who want controlled immigration and fewer abortions. There are Republicans who would go for higher taxes if the need and result were clear and wouldn't balk at sound environmental policy. But both parties make sure that no matter what their platforms say, there's always a deal breaker. There's always at least one thing that makes it impossible for a good Republican or a good Democrat to cross party lines and vote for the other guy. The deal breakers are usually something from the extreme far right or far left side of the party's agenda. The pipe dreams that have no chance of being made into law anyway. But we're told that that guy running for Senate as a Republican wants to pass a law saying women can no longer own property, or that woman seeking a Democratic congressional seat will outlaw guns or confiscate your gas-powered car and replace it with an electric one that won't make it over the next hill without needing a charge. That Republican is going to make your kid take communion before a first period in your public school. That Democrat's going to let 50 million immigrants move in and get free snacks and drinks and health care while you get laid off so they can take your job and move into your house when it forecloses and adopt your dog when you can't afford to feed him anymore. A Republican will draft your son into the Marines and send him to die in a pointless low country conquest. A Democrat will bulldoze your swimming pool and put in a windmill. A Republican majority means everyone has to have two dogs. A Democratic one means cats for everybody. A 20-something in line to vote in November will tell you with certainty that he's voting Democrat to keep Belgium free from colonization, and the old lady behind him is voting Republican so she can keep her Pomeranian in her purse. Immigration is still going to be a complicated mess. No one is going to take your guns or put your grandma out on the street or provide a health care plan that will make you think you can actually go to the doctor if you get sick. Because in two years or four, You'll need books S through Z of the encyclopedia and a new vacuum cleaner, mostly to get the dust off the encyclopedias no one's reading. In this tortured metaphor, your kid has to stay dumb, and your floors must always be dirty. Otherwise, what would we need door-to-door -door salesmen for? The two parties America has left get quite a lot from us, just from being the last two men standing. The math a few years ago was that 40% of the country votes Democrat and 40% votes Republican, leaving a mythical 20% of the electorate left to win. If you think about it, that means that most elections are over, or close to over, long before they begin. It's why our elections are so close, and are more often contested. It means your vote, depending on where you live, is very likely taken for granted. Blind partisan allegiance means that a Republican presidential candidate isn't bringing his message to Alabama. 
A Democratic candidate isn't spending too much time in Illinois, home of the Republican Party's most famous president. If you're a Delaware Republican or a Wyoming Democrat, you don't have to skip work on Election Day to vote, because it won't matter. I'll cover this in more detail in a future episode, when the dogs and I abolish the Electoral College, but for now we'll put a pin in the fact that the parties have engineered a situation where the votes of millions of Americans don't count. Here's another thing it means. If you're a loyal Republican in a deep red state, the Republican Party isn't staying awake at night wondering what they can do for you. If you're a committed Democrat in a dark blue state, the party isn't having day-long meetings to figure out what you might want to see in their legislative agenda. They already have the only thing you have to give or withhold, your vote. And if you're a dedicated partisan, you hand it over for nothing. So while you're awake at night wondering how you're going to pay for your medication, or what will happen if you lose your job, or your precocious kid gets into a pricey college, the party you reliably vote for is sleeping pretty soundly, with no plan to do anything about it. Time to give them insomnia. If the Republican Party woke up on a Tuesday in November to find out that Mississippi went for the Democrats, or the Democrats discovered that they lost Oregon, it would be like a volcanic eruption triggered an earthquake that sent a tsunami to wash away one of our favorite cities. All of a sudden, those traveling salesmen would come knocking on every door in America, asking what they can do to get you to reconsider your decision not to buy a new vacuum or the rest of the books in their encyclopedia collection. They will point at your dirty floor and your dull-witted spawn and tell you how much you stand to lose if you don't buy what they're selling. All of a sudden, you'll find yourself holding all the cards. You would be in a position to name your terms instead of finding out months and years later what you bought for your vote. It sounds fun. So how do we do that? Let's take a look at history. I know. Hang in there. If you look back at the times in our history when it seemed that the country was most united, or at least able to get things done effectively, it was when the nation faced a small number of fairly serious issues. Like the founding of the Republic and the whole getting the country up and running thing after the Constitution was ratified. George Washington was able to get everyone to the table and set smaller issues aside for the sake of making America stable enough to make it through its first couple of decades without collapsing. If you take a look at the aftermath of the French Revolution or any number of revolutions since, you can see why George was concerned. America's conquest of Belgium would have to wait until the United States could pay its bills on time. Or the Civil War. The Union was literally in danger of collapsing. Our trade war with Bolivia had to take a back seat for a while. The Great Depression. Banks were failing and a third of the country was out of work. People were literally selling their children and living in tents. Figuring out the thorny issue of timber rights at the Canadian border was going to have to wait until Americans weren't going hungry and banks had money again. Whoops. Hold off on that because the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and we had another big problem. The question of whether we should drill for oil in that swamp where a rare snake lived was solved by all the tanks that needed gas to beat the bloody Hun. The dogs are asleep by now, but you get the idea. We got effective government when our list of national priorities was down to one or two seriously important things. If a politician came out in the 1860s talking about something other than the departure of half the country from the Union and what we were going to do about it, he was reminded by the electorate that we had bigger things to worry about. 
If a candidate in the 1930s rode the rails demanding that America do something about air pollution, the homeless men on the train with him would probably throw him off, and likely while the train was crossing a high bridge. Whenever the country faced seemingly insurmountable problems, it was the people who said in pretty much one voice, fix these things first, then we can talk about all that other stuff. The parties know this, so they've adjusted their messaging along specific lines. Like, the country doesn't have major problems. We're all fine and we'll all be better off if you all vote in lockstep for our party. Any problems facing the country when you get right down to it are the fault of the other side, so we'll all be better off if you all vote in lockstep for our party. The things you think are a big deal, the national debt, health care, the apparent ability of corporations to buy legislation, and complete governmental dysfunction are nothing compared to abortion, climate change, guns, immigration, and tax policy. Those are the things that truly threaten the future of America, so we'll all be better off if you all vote in lockstep for our party. Rich people get tax breaks, poor people get government handouts. Most Americans can borrow the money they need to support the lifestyle they want. If there's a chicken in every pot and a car in every driveway, as Herbert Hoover promised to get us the year before the Great Depression hit, then what do we have to complain about? Herbert and his Republican Party found that out the hard way four years later. The bottom line is that the parties will actually do what you tell them. They've been responding to the wishes of the public throughout our history. Look how many times they've changed their tune to match the music playing on the streets of the country. But in post-Watergate America, they figured out that ramping up partisan issues locked down millions of guaranteed votes and their path to power became clear. Now that they already have your votes in their pockets, they're doing whatever they want, on your dime. Let's try this. Our next election will be about three things and only three things. Congressional term limits, eliminating campaign contributions by anyone except individuals, and a plan to pay down the national debt. Any candidate who campaigns on anything else will lose. A Mississippi Republican will be voted out of office by Mississippi Republicans. An Illinois Democrat will find his guaranteed votes going for the other guy. That would really be something. And if it works, we'll get congressional term limits, less pay for play in Washington, and a much sounder long-term fiscal outlook. And the parties will come knocking on our doors asking what we want them to do next. Which sounds a lot more like government by the people, for the people. Have at it. Post something on the I'm Not Allowed to Watch the News Facebook page, even if it's a picture of your own long-suffering pets. If you know of some historical American dogs the boys might like to learn more about, or if you have a vacuum cleaner recommendation, you can Twitter them to at NotAlloudPod. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to Not Allowed to Watch the News. There was a time when we used to travel the open road and pull into a highway diner and meet fascinating people, hear incredible stories, and learn about new ideas. Now I was taught at a young age that you should always sit at the counter. Not only did you meet the most interesting people, but you also got the best service and hottest coffee. Now the open highway brings that concept, not the coffee, the other stuff to a weekly podcast. Interviews, current events, news, odd stories, and more. I'm your host, Eric Erickson. 
I'm an author, writer, and journalist, and I've had incredible adventures, and I bring all of those experiences to the show. I know a little bit about everything, and it's just enough to get me into trouble. So join me for The Open Highway, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you.